just shy of 17 months ago, about this time of the day, I was lounging on a rather uncomfortable hospital chair slash bed type piece of furniture, the kind that has the like plasticky vinyl material on the outside, and 90% of the time it functions as a chair, but occasionally it will lay almost flat, so that, at least in this case, the husband can sleep in the same room as his wife after she's given birth. Um, to say that that moment um, when your child enters the world and you hear the cry for the first time is anything short of a miracle would not do it justice. I was laying there soaking in this amazing life change. I had no idea just how big of a change it would be, but in that moment, it was so wonderful and so precious, and there was just so much wrapped into that moment. Um, it's, there was a picture at one point. Um, <laughs> I remember holding my daughter for the first time and how the, the tears of joy and wonder that, that flowed out of that moment um, that has actually taken in the moment the first time I held our sweet Baylin. Um, but it's just such a powerful, powerful moment. There's so much in that. That evening, our first evening as a family of three, uh, I'm, I'm laying there almost flat. My wife is resting in in her bed, and I have Balin asleep on my chest, and I leaned over, and I picked up my Bible, and I started reading to her Psalm 139, and as I neared verse 13, I could really barely read through the tears of joy and just being struck with wonder as um, I read the words, you, you made my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. The weight of this biblical truth was quite literally laying on my chest. It's a miracle. It's wonderful. As I looked at her, there's, there's this instant bond that happened between us, and it was this intensely personal experience. What we read of, what we heard read to us earlier in Psalm 139, is David realizing that same intensely personal relationship, but not with a son or daughter, but God's feelings towards him. And he says, Wow, this is too great, too wonderful for me to comprehend. As we walk through this passage together this evening, there's going to be multiple attributes of God that come to the surface. And as we see those, we're going to see the peace and joy and love that comes from being transparent before God, asking Him to search us and examine us. And we're going to see the natural response to when we stop and look at and ponder our God. As we go, we'll have some application that comes about. But um, before we develop these points, it's important for us to spend a little bit of time walking through the passage so that we see where they come from in the text. When we look at the first six verses, one through six, we see David proclaiming God's intimate knowledge of him. And this isn't David boasting about, hey, you know, I'm a guy, said I'm a man after God's own heart. It's not a, I'm king, look at me. It's this humble reality of God loving him. It's God thinking of him, and he's like, wow, God thinks of me? I'm just a man. I'm sinful. But that's what we see David. David's response in this passage is what we're reading, and David proclaims, you know my actions. You know my thoughts before I think of them. You know my words before I say them. That is intensely personal and intimate. Now, to some who don't know God, that's a scary thought. 
I mean, if you think about it, if you're, you're talking about God and you're, you're thinking about, man, this guy knows my thoughts. He knows what I said. He knows what I did yesterday. He knows what I'm going to do later. That's, that's kind of intense and scary. But on the same token, if you're here and you're a child of God, if you're in this room and you're, you're a follower of Christ, there's an amazing sense of peace that comes from knowing that God knows you at this level and he desires to know you deeper and deeper and deeper. It's beautiful. It's, it's a peace that brings about joy and excitement of following God. There's a peace that comes, I mean, in verse 5, David proclaims, you, you've gone before me, you're behind me. And not only that, you have your hand upon me saying, we can do this. There's a peace that comes from, from basking in the presence of God. David can't fathom that. And he says, whoa, this is too much for me too lofty for me to attain. I can't fathom how God would know me at this level. And we can't fathom that in our human minds. But there's a sense of peace that comes from that. And not just from thinking of, you know, when I get up, you know, when I lay down. But David goes on and says, even I can't go any place where you're not there. Right? If I, if I, go to the east, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, so if I'm, if I'm in the east, you're there. If I um, go to the far side of the sea, even there, you're there. I can't go away from you. If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you are there. If I go to the night when I can't see anything in the dark, still, you are there. For somehow, I can't explain it, I don't understand, but night is like day to you. I can't from your presence there's, there's a sense of peace and joy that comes from knowing our God not only longs to be with us and desires us and desires to know us at such an intimate level but that he's always there, he's always with us verses 13 through 18 pick up on um, God's ever present character and his all knowing power and David says you've put me together in my mother's womb I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In the, in the darkness of the womb, you knit me into being. David tries to fathom this, and he says, to think through just how much you think of me would be like trying to count the sand on the shore. It's impossible. And even if I could, your thoughts for me, your cares for me, are even greater than that. That is... A very precious gift to us as children of God. To, to dwell on God and think about how much He loves us and how much He desires us. How much, despite ourselves, He longs to know us more. And when we dwell on that, when we dwell on the attributes of God, on, on the things we see of God in this passage, it elicits in us a sense of, of worship, a desire to know God more and not only know God, but to, to become even more like God in the sense of being more holy and more set apart. We see this come out in a fairly obscure way in verses 19 through 22 that don't, that they almost seem to not really fit in the passage. But they do. Um, when, when we read them, we see David pleading with God to make evil flee. He says, slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. What we see here is not a, a murderous request or a, um, even unjust anger. 
what we see is a man so caught up in, in God, in dwelling on his character, a man so caught up in God's greatness and wonder that when he looks around and he sees the evil around him, he's appalled. Now, the language he uses is, is, is pretty strong. I mean, it's strong enough that I think if somebody would use that in our culture today, referencing just about anything, they would probably have to undergo a psychiatric evaluation to make sure they're okay. Um, but when we, when we think about the, the time that David's writing this, when we think about the life that he's experienced, it's a beautiful part of this passage. See, David didn't know a peaceful time like we have here in America. And yeah, life isn't always perfect and violence happens and those things do. But David grew up in a time where he quite literally didn't know what the next day would hold, let alone what that night was going to hold. As a boy, he's sleeping in fields fighting lions to keep sheep alive. As a young man, he goes onto a battlefield and fight, faces and kills a giant that an entire army is afraid of. Right? He goes later in life and he's playing instruments for King Saul in his palace. Saul's a, a little um, probably bipolar to say the least. Um, but he's playing and, and David is, is playing beautiful music and Saul decides that he's jealous and angry with David and tries to impale him with a spear. David spends months in hiding to stay alive. Right? David becomes king at a time when kings and kingdoms were constantly at, bat, at war trying to grow and expand. David becomes king at a time when families would quite literally turn on each other and kill each other for control and power and wealth. David didn't know peace. And so when he looks around and he's appalled at the evil, the wording that he uses is so fitting and so beautiful. You see his heart for God, his desire to be in God's presence, and the appalling nature of anything that would keep him from that. The passage finishes with, with two verses that are very similar to the way the passage starts. David begins the psalm with acknowledging that God has searched him and knows him. And the psalm ends with David saying, Search me more. Know me more. Show me where I am offensive to you. Lead me in your ways. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. One of the things we see in this passage is that God knows his creation. He knows you just like he knows David. Right? And that can be a scary thought, but it's a fact, and it's a beautiful thing that we get to deal with, and we get to ponder, and we get to, to think about and let it draw us into worshiping this God. The beauty of this passage is, is the worship that comes from understanding that God sees us as we are. Right? He's made us. He's knit us together. He knows our thoughts before we speak them. He knows us at such a deep level. I mean, think about... Your actions, are they always something that you want God to see at that, at that moment? <laughs> you know, but God sees that, and he still longs for us. Not just wants us, he longs for us. He sends Jesus so that we can come to him. He longs for us, he wants us. Bela and my, our daughter is, is just shy, is four days shy of being 17 months old. Um... And like a lot of toddlers, she doesn't have a huge vocabulary, but that doesn't stop her from desiring to con converse with uh, Megan and I or anybody else willing to sit down and talk with her. Um, but she's also stubborn, a trait that I still insist I have no idea where she's got. Um, but she wants what she wants. 
And in, in the evening times, when we sit down for dinner, her high chair is pulled up between Megan and I, and we sit down. We have our food. She has hers. And we'll start talking. Megan and I will talk. We'll catch up on our days, talk about the week, what's going on. Sometimes serious conversations, sometimes lighthearted conversation. But if we don't keep Balin involved in the conversation, if we don't look at her, if we're not cutting up food and giving it to her, she lets us know. Right? And at first, it's kind of polite even. It's kind of like a, hey, like a reminder that I'm here. But if you don't jump to that, if you try to finish your thought, it becomes a sound that I'm not even going to attempt to make. It's like a shrilling shriek that rattles the windows, that you know, makes the dog whimper. Um, but when, when you don't <laughs> address that, even at that point, she gets louder and louder and louder. And if we had a dog, I'm pretty sure the poor thing would be deaf by now. But that's, it's, it's amazing how loud this little girl's voice is. But that's not the point. Her vocal capacity has nothing to do with this. What, what we see in this passage is David having a similar response to God. Right? Not in the sense of Balin kind of selfishly wanting more of mommy and daddy. But once Balin experiences our attention, she wants more of it. We can't just look at her and then go back to conversation. She wants more of us. When, when David experiences God, when David realizes how much God loves him, his response is wanting more of it. We see that at the beginning and end of the passage. David recognizes that God knows him at such an intimate and intense level, and then he ends saying, I want more of it. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's exciting. It should elicit worship and joy and love and peace in us. And as we as we experience that, as we grow closer and closer to God, we can't help but worship. The words that we read in this passage are the raw, unfiltered words of David as he's pondering God. He proclaims God's attributes, the, the idea of God's omnipresence and omniscience, words that are really fancy for saying God knows everything and he is everywhere. He's pondering these things, and he says, wow, God, you are, you are too grand for me to fathom, too, too much for my brain to comprehend. Our God is incomprehensible. We often try to comprehend him, and to, and to an extent, we do need to seek to understand and know him more. But the fact that we can't comprehend him should elicit this worship. It should bring us back to our knees in, in, in an a raw and unfiltered sense, it should drive us to say, whoa. What does that mean, though? What does it mean for us to be driven to worship? What does it look like in our lives to worship? We often think of worship as the time before and after a sermon in church um, to start or end the service where we're singing. We're led in, in musical worship. And yes, that, that is worship. That is part of worship. And it is a beautiful thing. And we need that in our lives. But if that is the only time we're worshiping, then we're missing out on some great life experience. See, upstairs with the middle schoolers, we talk about worship and church, and we do these things. And we, I, I teach the students that, yes, coming to church and hearing the word taught and singing songs and talking about the scriptures are all aspects of worship. But our worship can't stop there because our worship is a lifestyle. 
So when you're on the sports field, you can worship. When you're doing your homework, you can do it as an act of worship. When you're acting, when you're playing your instruments, it's because worship is a lifestyle. We see that in, in, with David here in his response, in the way he goes about being king. His lifestyle is worship. And yes, our worship includes coming to church. It includes corporate singing. It includes preaching. It includes Bible study. It includes prayer. It includes us saying, God, search me and lead me. But those moments need to pour into, they must pour into our daily activities. Our corporate and private worshiping of God needs to impact and pour into the way we drive, the way we approach our work, the way we cook meals, the way we clean our house, the way we do homework. Because worship is a lifestyle. And the thing we see in David in this passage, David was not a perfect man, but what we see is his focus was on God. God first. And that cultivated in him a lifestyle of worship. Something interesting here is David lived at a time before Jesus, right? He didn't have the New Testament to read of Jesus' teaching. He didn't have Jesus' example to follow. But that didn't change what he did. He still stopped and he pondered and he thought about God. And he studied and he knew the scriptures. And that created in him a heart condition that led to a lifestyle of worship. David was more concerned about God knowing him and searching him and even judging him than he was about what others thought. David was so enlightened and so encouraged by the thought that God who made everything, the God who created the universe, who created him, seeks to know him at such an intensely personal level that he continued to come back and he continued to ponder more. He was so emboldened by the thought that God had chosen him before he was even made, that God had ordained him for this day at this time, that we read of things of David in, in, like in 2 Samuel chapter 6 where, where David is out with the Israelites and they're bringing the ark of the Lord back into the city of David. And David is out with all of Israel celebrating the, ark, the return of the ark. And he's dancing with all of his might. Like holding nothing back. He doesn't care that the entire nation is watching their king dance with all of his might. I don't even know what that looks like. But they're watching him dance with all of his might and they don't care and he doesn't care. He's worshiping God through dance. He's praising God for the work that's happening. And his wife sees him and is embarrassed for the two of them. You can almost feel the tension as you read the passage of how David's coming home. And she says, yeah, way to act like a king. Uh, you really undignified yourself there. You've embarrassed me. You've embarrassed yourself. And David's response, because of his focus, was, whoa, for my God, I will be even more undignified than this. See, David's focus was on God and his glory, not his own, not his wife's, on God's. God first. We would do well to keep that in mind, our God first mentality. Because we live in a culture that says all of our other relationships come first. And in, in a sense, relationships are very important. But what we see in David with God first, God, his relationship with God influenced his relationship with the people he was ruling with his wife. God first, others second. But God came first, and then 
the relationships came. The relationships functioned better. Now, putting God first doesn't mean all of a sudden your friendship problems or your marital problems are just going to disappear. But by putting God first, it will radically change the way you approach those things. But it comes with putting God first. Having a God-first focus. David's view is not keeping others happy. It was not keeping up with the Joneses. David viewed life with the idea of knowing God and making him known. That's what we see in this passage. And at, at a very basic level, that's Christianity. That's the Christian life. Knowing God and making him known. We see this come out in another obscure way um, in verses 19 through 22. We address this as we walk through the passage, but we see a man, David, who's a man after God's own heart, living in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. And what we see is a natural response to sin and evil. It's appalling. It's repulsive. I don't like it. I don't want it. God, slay the wicked. Keep me from falling. Keep the the evil that would seek to pull me down, to keep me from your will. Keep it away from me. Would you come back? Would you reign? Would you get rid of evil? It's It's a hatred of evil. And it comes from It's a result of David being transparent before God, knowing God at such a, such a, knowing that God knows him at such an intimate level, and him knowing God at such an intimate level. It's that focus on God that cultivates in him a a despising feeling towards sin and evil. But it was not David's focus. David's focus was not on hating sin; it was on loving God, and out of his love of God cultivated this hatred of sin. And it's important as, as we live in God's presence, as we, as we go about our days, it's important that we guard our hearts and our minds against the things that would pull us down. But it's also important that we think about our focus, because if our focus is on the hatred of sin, if that goes unchecked, we're in trouble. But if our focus is on the love of God, the, the focus that we see in David is a love of God. If that is our focus, then we're naturally going to be appalled at evil, which then in turn makes it a little easier to watch and guard our hearts and minds against the things that would pull us down. What we see in this passage can be dangerous if it's not, if it's not continually put in check. David follows up this, this detesting of sin by saying, search me, test me, know that my ways are pure. Show me where I'm offensive so that we can work on this, so that we can come together and be be holy, be together. Um, and it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. Now David, like we said, I said, didn't have Jesus' example to follow. He, he, he didn't have the New Testament scriptures to read, but we do. We live on this side of the cross. Right? We don't have to go to a temple and sacrifice an animal for our offensive ways, our sinful ways. We simply come and say, Jesus, I am not good enough. I can't do this on my own. I need you. Forgive me for my sins. That's the start of us stopping and asking God to examine us. That's the start of us being transparent before God. That's the start of this, of our own intensely personal relationship with God. That's the start of us stopping to ponder God. You can't earn it. You can't clean yourself up enough to be fit for it. And if you're here and you don't know the beauty of that deep, deep relationship with God, 
ask you not to leave here until you say, God, I need you. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. It's a free gift. Open for the taking. And when we think about, when we ponder that God loves us so much, he created our inmost being. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows our words before we speak them. But yet he didn't stop there. That's how much he thinks of us and how much he cares about us. But then he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And not just die on the cross, but to raise from the grave to defeat death so that we can say, death, where is your sting? We don't have anything to fear because God goes before us, he's behind us, and he's got a hand on our back that says, we got this. Right? That's encouraging. That's a peaceful thought can't earn it. We can't, we can't get there on our own. We need Jesus. As we've walked through the passage this evening, a couple attributes of God have, have surfaced. His all-knowingness, his, his all-powerful nature. We've, we've seen that a natural reaction to knowing God and knowing that he knows us at such an intense level, reaction to being transparent before God, having nothing to hide, because we can't hide anything anyway, is, is the natural outflow of that is worship. A, a lifestyle of worship. An abandoning of everything else for the sake of the one and only true God. The God who made your inmost being. Who knows your days before you live them. He knows your words before you speak them. So does it not make sense then to give your life to him to ask for his leading and his guiding in his ways won't you ask him to lead you and guide you won't you stop and ponder him every day because if you do if you stop and you ponder God each and every day you'll find yourself worshiping the only thing that matters let's close in prayer Oh God, search us. Show us our offensive ways. Bring us into the peace and joy and love of being sold out for your kingdom. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for life. Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that they would come to know the beauty of a personal relationship with you. Would you move in their hearts and in their words to confess their need for you, for your forgiveness. And God, start a new work in our lives this evening. God, as we enter a time of music worship, would you fix our eyes on you and help us to bask in the wonder of knowing you and knowing that you know us, and and you know us as we are, and yet you still long for us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name.